When's the time in your life where you felt most loved? Like somebody did something for you, and you had this moment where you're like, man, like it could have been big, it could have been small, but you had this moment where you're like, I genuinely feel so cared for and loved by what just happened right there. Uh, as I was thinking about this, um, I thought one of kind of like, the, the next question that I'll ask you is, when do you feel like you've loved somebody most extravagantly? Uh, that one was the one that immediately popped to my mind when I started thinking about this. The one that, that kind of uh, I had to dig for just a little bit was like, when, it was honestly kind of hard for me. I'm like, when did I feel like very, very loved? When, du- when Suki and I were dating, uh, she planned this thing for my birthday that was the first time I had ever had a surprise party. Yeah. Like my parents totally like lavished us up when we were kids and gave us great gifts and made a huge deal out of our birthdays. Usually we'd not have birthdays, we'd have birthday weekends. Anyone else do that? Yeah. It was awesome. It's, if, if you, feel free to adopt it as inheritance. It's, this is a good thing. You extend out your birthday for a weekend. But it would be like a big dinner. We'd go out and like play some golf or something like that or do something fun as a family or go skiing. And then there'd be like another big celebration dinner and pri- presents and all that stuff. With Suki, the first time that I ever had a surprise party was when we were dating, and she totally surprised me. It was completely off my radar. And she had Kerwin, who goes to this church, deceive me as one of his closest friends. Yeah, I know. Deception. And, uh, and he kind of got me up to this park, and I came up over the hill thinking that I was there to, I think it's like pick up a sweatshirt or something, kind of like, you know, super uninteresting. And I come up over this hill, and I come down the other side, and all of my favorite people are standing there on the green, like, hey, surprise! And there was this thing, I don't know I don't know what it was. There's, it, you know, like I make it sound like there's like 50 people and it was like, hey, this eruption. It was probably like six, you know? <laughs> but the fact, the fact that everybody was there just for me, I don't know. There was something about it that like really got me and they, and they really genuinely surprised me. And I remember it to this day as one of the moments where I was like, I'm not exactly sure why it felt so significant, but it did. It felt unbelievably significant. The one where I feel like I loved most extravagantly, uh, this one was quick to come to mind because it was so brutal. I've told this story a number of times, but uh, when Suki and I were engaged to be married, Suki was not in a great place, and I think it was like six weeks before our wedding date, the Lord told me very clearly that I was supposed to hold off on the wedding. So invitations had gone out, our guests knew, all the arrangements were made, all of this stuff. And I was praying one day, and I felt like the Lord told me, the most loving thing that you can do for your wife right now is to push this wedding back. And it was the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my life. In fact, I was on staff with InterVarsity at this, at this point, And before I did it, I knew that I was going to do it. And I had a staff meeting where I had to go and like, pretend like I cared about anything else on earth except for this moment that was about to happen. And I go in there and like the, I think it was Nikki Toyama at the time was just like, like, hey, you know, let's go around the room and like, let's share what's going on in life, you know? (laughs) And I share this whopper with them and it basically took over the meeting because I was like heaving sobs. Oh my gosh, I'm about to start crying. (laughs) 
it was so it was so difficult and so painful but i knew it was god and if i knew it was god i knew it was going to be good i did not know the outcome i didn't know if she was supposed to be married to somebody else or you know like what was going to happen with this whole thing but it was so hard and we ended up you know i ended up going over her house and telling her and she was actually kind of like almost okay in the moment and then like you know a while later it settled in oh we're not going to europe anymore oh we're not moving into the apartment that we had set up anymore oh you know like all of the ramifications of this decision started to settle in and she realized that she kind of had nothing and the bottom fell out and it was this like really really difficult season that she endured in an amazing way and through that season she met with jesus in such a way where rather than our marriage and kind of this future that we had planned for us being her hope and her foundation jesus himself in all of his beauty and glory was her foundation and her life and if we had gotten married in that situation i would have been the one that she was hoping in and europe would have been the one thing that she was hoping in but when we got married and we were up there and we were worshiping and celebrating Jesus, the presence of God was so thick and we were standing there knowing that not only had we surrendered in the most intense way as a couple and shown our love for Jesus in that way, but she knew that I loved God more than I loved her in a lot of senses and that that was the foundation that we were building our marriage upon. And it was probably the biggest sacrifice that I could have given in that, in that part of my life for God and for her. And as we move into Matthew 26, we're going we're gonna to read about somebody who had a similar kind of moment, not similar to mine with like the, the wedding and all that, but similar moment where there's an extravagant act of worship. And we get the sense, there's a few times in the scriptures, I love these times in the stories of Jesus, where he's truly, it feels like he's truly moved. It feels like he's truly moved. Remember like the centurion? It's this kind of like Gentile who's not really supposed to know God, but he comes to him and he has this outrageous faith where he goes, hey, you don't need to come to my house. Just speak a word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, whoa. He's like literally, he's like shocked. I have not seen faith like this anywhere amongst Israel, like amongst the people of God. He's genuinely moved. I feel like this is another time where Jesus is genuinely moved. And this time, it's not so much based on faith, although it is, because it's an extension. It's based on love. And we see Jesus just totally moved by this act of love. And so let's jump into Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. I think we're going to put it up here. There it is. Here we go. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may, there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was at Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she, she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for my burial. 
Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted up for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So it's a really interesting kind of like Bible sandwich thing that often happens as a literary technique where you have Jesus talking about his death and then it shows the Pharisees kind of scheming behind the scenes as to kind of the coming death of Jesus and them doing that. And then at the end, you see the thing actualized and sandwiched right in the middle here is this love story where the woman of the story uh, and in other parts of the Gospels, it talks about her as the sinful woman, not, not in, in Matthew here, but this woman comes in, and there's kind of a juxtaposition between her and the disciples in terms of what's going on in this encounter with Jesus. And clearly the woman comes out to be the hero in this story in a pretty profound way. And Jesus is so moved by the act of this woman that he says, wherever the Gospel goes forward from this day forth, this story will be told not as a display of love to glorify my father, not as whatever you want to fill in the gap that's so important, but in memory of her. This woman moved Jesus so much in this act of love that it's written in all four Gospels, which very rarely happens. It's written in all four Gospels, and it's written in the texts, the very biographies of Jesus' life in every single one of them, and has been read billions and billions of times since then in memory of her. This is, this is amazing. This is amazing. And David got this same thing. David understood that he could move the heart of God with acts of worship. So much so that the Son of God is called the Son of David in the Bible. That's pretty amazing. Like, just personalize that for yourself for a second so we take it out of kind of like the Bible mythology, oh, it's David who killed a giant with a stone, right? Like, put that in terms of you, like the Son of God being called the Son of Ryan forever. It's super blasphemous. It's weird to even say, that's the whole point, right? Like, that's the whole point. This is a normal woman who next to the gospel, next to the biographies of Jesus, her story is told in terms of what she's done forever, David got something, and I think this woman got something too, that somehow God has given us this high and lofty place where we can move him with our acts of worship. We can actually move the heart of God in the things that we do in this life. And so let's just break down a little bit of this passage in this kind of juxtaposition that I was talking about between this woman who does this extravagant thing and is remembered forever and the disciples who do this kind of foolish thing, and they're also remembered forever in kind of a different light, right? Like their story is told too, right? And um, so the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. So this is classic Jesus. He's hanging out with a leper, Simon the leper. So when he says, like, when he turns away their idea about giving this money away for the poor— it's not because Jesus is callous to the poor. The leper was the most poor person that existed in this society, pretty much. I mean, they were shunned in pretty much every way. 
we have, to under, we have to assume since there's a whole dinner party that's going on in this guy's house and Jesus is the guest of honor, I'm pretty sure that this guy was no longer Simon the leper. He was probably like Simon the healed leper, right? Like there's no way he's sitting there with leprosy while all this is going on and they're like feasting in the guy's home. I think we can probably assume that. So this guy had had a radical encounter with Jesus. This guy was in the worst of the worst type of a situation and now he's hosting Jesus in his home. And this woman comes in who's not invited to the party, right? We get no sense from the story that she has an invitation in her hand as she comes in. It seems like she kind of comes in in the middle of the party. Nobody knows really what's going on. She walks over to Jesus, and it doesn't seem like he knows what's going on here. She just busts open this alabaster jar of really expensive perfume. It's worth about $55,000 in today's wages. It's about a year's worth. And she busts this thing open and she pours it over Jesus' head in the middle of this party. So this is like a, you know, again, put yourself in this situation. You're entering into a party that you're not invited to, and you're going up to kind of the, you know, the famous teacher, the famous rabbi, the famous prophet of the day, and you're doing this very extravagant thing right in the middle of this party, and you have no idea how you'll be received. But it seems like she's so compelled by love that she does this thing anyway. When the disciples saw this, this is the interesting part, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. To me, this isn't like a, this isn't an illogical thing, right? Like they probably used this example because they had watched the life of Jesus. They had seen him operate with the poor. They had seen him say, clearly this guy loves the poor. So, if you really knew Jesus, what you'd do with this is you'd sell it and you'd give your money to the poor. If you knew who the Savior was, this is probably what you do. This isn't something out of left field. Like, I kind of wonder if they cared about the poor that much. You know, like, are they really so concerned about the poor in this moment that they're like, oh, you should be giving money to the poor? I actually don't think that that's what's going on, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what they're saying is totally reasonable. $55,000, she does this extravagant act, and, and, uh, and, and they don't get it. And so Jesus kind of, a little bit in his nice way, lays into them, and he says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. So let's, let's dig into kind of this juxtaposition. And we have, on one hand, we have the simplicity of this woman, and on the other hand, we have the complexity of the disciples. And I want to tee it up like that very specifically because I think there's something that we see over and over again in the Gospels that talks about the childlikeness and, and how that's such a key to the kingdom and a key to pleasing God is this, this kind of simplicity of childlikeness. And I think this is a great example of this. I don't know whether this cost the woman everything she had or whether it was she was, you know, loaded. We don't know in this particular story. We don't get the sense that honestly, it really matters. This could have been one of those moments like it was where I was trying to love my wife, where she is like grinding herself to get to this moment where she's pouring the oil, oil over Jesus. If you've walked with Jesus at a, for, for any amount of time and, and truly done discipleship, there's these moments where he calls you to do stuff that is just so hard to do. Where just everything in you is like, I don't know that I can do this. This, is, this feels like too much. 
And Jesus calls for those moments. This could have been one of those moments for this woman. We don't know. Maybe this was all she had. Usually something like this was saved for her wedding day. It doesn't appear that she's married in the story, so maybe this is like breaking her hopes for marriage to pour over her Savior. And maybe it's like incredibly hard. Maybe she was sobbing in her home before she went to do it, like I was sitting with my university colleagues. We don't know. It could have been. Or maybe she was so overjoyed by the thing that God had done in her life that this was the easiest thing in the world for her to do. We see, there's times in my life where I've been compelled by love, where it's almost like doing the thing itself. I almost can't even take credit for the thing that was done on the other side of it. Because I was so overwhelmed with who God was. Turning down, like I've told this story a bunch of times, but my dad was a financial advisor. He made loads of money. The plan was for me to join the family business, make a ton of money with him and kind of cruise down this family business path. There's nothing wrong with that. It's inheritance. It's a beautiful thing. I have to believe that some of that would have gone to the kingdom, all of that good stuff. That was not what God had for me. But I was coming off of a moment with Jesus where my love, the emotions of love that I had for Jesus were so on an all-time high that turning that thing down almost feels like I don't know how I couldn't have. There's evidence of this kind of with Paul. He says, he's like, I'm so compelled to preach that I don't even think I deserve a reward for preaching. The reward that I get comes from preaching for free, (laughs) right? Like, I'm a laborer. I deserve my wages. But like preaching itself, I can't not do that. And there's this thing where it's like, there's this moment with Jesus where he's probably like so overwhelmed with the revelation of Jesus and what has happened in his life that he can't just not do stuff. And I think there's moments like that and there's moments like this that exist in our discipleship with Jesus. And I want to say that both of them are love. Both of them are love. They're different expressions of love. Sometimes we're on this high with Jesus and it's like so easy to give it all. And other times we're in this kind of like grind moment where it's a new area of surrender and it's like, oh my gosh, it's, oh, like how do I push through on this and get there? And the thing that I want to say to us as disciples of Jesus is it's really good to be close to both of those kinds of experiences. When we as Christians get too far from either of those types of experiences, a little, a little alarm bell should kind of go off in our heads as to, like, I don't want to get so far from tears that I don't remember what it's like to be touched by God and made alive on the inside. And I don't want to get so far from surrender that I don't know what it's like anymore to, to grind through in an area that I know there's an area of my insides that just need to enter into a deeper place of surrender. Both of these things are extremely healthy, and both of these things are expressions of love. And we're not sure which one of these that the woman is actively in in this moment. But I do get the sense that there's a moment of simplicity for her where she's so singularly focused on Jesus. I don't know that she knows of all the other stuff and like the social dynamics that are going on around her. It doesn't feel like that's one of these moments. It feels like she's so compelled in this moment that there's a simplicity about loving Jesus that feels really evident in this. And 
I think it's kind of interesting that the disciples, one of the things that they say is they kind of have this theological argument as to why she shouldn't be doing this. You know, theologically speaking, God cares about the poor. In Isaiah 58, if this woman had, had, had read Isaiah 58, she'd know that God is about breaking the cords of injustice and giving to the poor. And she, there's, it feels like the disciples have this kind of like understanding of who Jesus is and what they think that he would want, that they stop looking to him to interpret the situation at hand. Right? Like they think they know him enough that they don't need to look for him for interpretation. If they were looking to Jesus and not to the woman in this moment, they would see the big smile on his face and they would see him basking in the love of this woman that is truly moving him. But somehow in their theology or in the complexity of this moment, they've now turned their attention towards the Christian and off of Jesus. And they're so consumed with the error of this Christian that they don't even realize that their understanding of what's going on here is completely different than Jesus's. They've so moved, they're in such a place of complexity because they've moved their eyes off of Jesus for interpretation of the situation they're in, the act of the Christian, the way the church is operating. I mean, fill in the blank as to all the ways that our discipleship gets super complex. And they are thinking about that. Maybe they're thinking about the poor outside. Maybe they're thinking about the host, how it's rude for her to come in here, how she's taking over the event. Maybe they're thinking about their own discipleship and how this might, like, look badly on them. Like, they kind of got the corner market on what great discipleship looks like right now, right? And then somebody comes in and one's up some, and maybe this is just an excuse that's coming up in their heart that they're afraid that they're in competition with this woman of all people, in society, women are, like, not supposed to be the heroes in the story. And then this woman comes in and does this extravagant thing. Whatever it is, something in their thinking got crazy complex to the place that they completely took their eyes off of Jesus for interpretation as to what was going on here, made a snap conclusion, and ended up completely wrong. And I was thinking about this. I was like, man, how often do we do this in our Christian lives? Where the simplicity of loving Jesus, this extravagant act of worship from this woman, becomes complex in some way, and then the church turns on its, itself, and instead of rejoicing with Jesus over this beautiful act of worship, it ends up crucifying the person who's doing it. I mean, the theological debates that we get into that end up throwing people away or like the move of the spirit that goes on. Like oftentimes there's these charismatic moves of the spirit that happen in the church in these various locations. And the thing's probably not done perfectly, but it's clear that there's a powerful move of God going on there. And people on the outside are so consumed with critiquing everything, every little thing that's going on with this move, that they completely miss the fact that there's this a beautiful, glorious moment going on in the church that could be celebrated and could end up in something that benefits the church for decades to come. But we're so busy critiquing the thing that we totally miss it. Is it like the church that like is completely centered around social justice that's right? Well, no, because they don't even get it. You know, they don't even get the theology stuff and why all this other stuff. Oh, it's the church around evangelism because that one doesn't do nearly enough explicit evangelism. They don't preach the message when they're going to love the poor. They just go love the poor. 
And then the one over here is like doing the evangelism stuff and preaching the gospel and all this stuff. Oh, but they don't really love the poor and, you know, they don't love the church that well. They're just all about the lost. But the sheep, the sheep, the, the, the people in the church, that's what matters most. And the pastors get up and they say, if that was a sound church, then we'd, we'd be loving the Christians. They don't get that. They don't even do that in this church. And the worship people are like, it's really about the singular extravagant love of Jesus where we pray and fast. You know what I'm saying? Like, how crazy is this that we're looking across the aisle and instead of going and looking at the, I don't know, conservative Bible-loving church and going like, wow, look at their passion for Scripture. Look at the way that they love God through Scripture. And then we look at the social justice church, we go, wow, look at the expression of God that exists in that church. That is beautiful and amazing. Oh, wow, they know how to worship. Wow, they know how to pray. Wow, they know how... What, what are we doing? What the heck are we doing? Are we the disciples in this moment? Are we the woman? And I feel like there's this, like, this call back to the simplicity of just, man, let's be impressed with what, when somebody loves Jesus in some way, Let's be impressed with it. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sad on humanity right now. I was telling you this conversation I had with my barber the other day where she's like, well, I think maybe we'll get it in this next one. And I'm like, I just don't think that we will. <laughs> like, I think I've seen this, play, this tape play out too many times over generations. I mean, we've got a long history of things that are done good and, and things that are done. But man, like, I think we're kind of just come to the conclusion that we're in desperate need of a savior at this point. And so when we see something going right, how about we just agree that we're going to be impressed with it? You know, you like you see someone doing something, you're like, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That's so awesome. That's amazing that you're loving Jesus like that. And if it gets complex, like, you know, when we get into the mess of it, sometimes it's complex, but at least look to the face of Jesus and don't lean on your own understanding and your path theological understanding of like how to interpret this situation. But this woman, I think she totally signifies, she, she totally represents the simplicity, the childlikeness of loving Jesus. What does it look like to just be like so in love with Jesus and what he's done in your life that you forget about the crowd around you, you forget about the cost of your perfume for your wedding, you forget, you, you know, like all of that stuff is just secondary to this moment where you're coming in and you maybe you've envisioned it up and you come in, you break this thing over the head of Jesus and you pour it over, and in other Gospels, it says that she got on her face, and her tears were on his feet, and she was washing her, his feet with her tears and her hair. Just like consumed in, in, in loving Jesus. The simplicity of that. And I was thinking about, like, who, who in my life have I seen do that well? Who in my life have I seen kind of just, like, the simplicity of being thankful and, and grateful to the place where it led to an act of love. And this won't surprise you. There's like many people I could talk about in here. But I feel like Emily Fu is just like totally this person. Like over and over and over again in her life, both towards me and towards Jesus and towards this community, I've seen it. When she was poor as can be, I mean, I'll share this because I know Emmy wouldn't mind this. Literally eating expired cans of beans 
out of the back of her car. Somehow, she gave me a portable Bose speaker. I don't even think it was for my birthday. Was it? Do you remember? Yeah, it was just a thank you. It wasn't even, it wasn't even like my birthday. It wasn't a special moment. But like, she spent, I don't know, 300 bucks? And she doesn't get me the like, you know, uh, the JBL one that's like round and looks like a pill or whatever. And she gets me the Bose one and goes like all the way to just like love me in such a simple way. Have you ever met somebody like who really gets this with Jesus? Like you're hanging out with them and you've probably like some of us have had these moments where you're hanging out with somebody and all you're thinking about is actually that you want to just go and like worship and pray. For a lot of us, I want to just say, do you remember those moments? Do you remember those moments where you're just like, you're sitting out to lunch with somebody and you're just thinking about like, I really like, I love this person, but I don't want to be here. <laughs> I just want to like, I just want to go and like lay on my back in my room and I want to flip on some worship music and I want to like lavish Jesus with love. Like the simplicity of it. I remember when I was um, just first kind of really starting to walk with Jesus, I went to, um, I think it was the first one thing in KC IHOP. You guys know about the one thing? It's this annual conference, like tens of thousands of people. This was before it was like a huge hubbub. It was, you know, a few thousand people and it was like a New Year's thing. I think it was the first one. And I was sitting there um, and I was like loving on Jesus and loving the worship and the offering bucket was going around, and I was an IV staffer, you know, like, I was making, on a good year, 22 grand a year of trying to fundraise my own salary. I did not have a lot of money. I wasn't eating beans out of the back of my car, thank Jesus, but, <laughs> but I didn't have a lot of money. But about, I don't know, four years prior, I had gone on this trip to Italy when I was straight out of school, and when I was in St. Mark's Square in Venice, I went to this watch store, and there was a tag watch, which I had, I, I, I kind of like watches, and there's this tag watch, and it was like so cheap relative to the U.S., and so I took a good portion of my travel money, and I bought this tag watch, and then I just like went on the cheap for the rest of, you know, stayed in nasty hostels and didn't eat much, but I had this like awesome tag watch that I loved, and I brought it home, and I'm sitting there in KC IHOP service, and I feel like the Lord saying to me, you don't have any money, but I want you to throw that watch into the, into the bucket. And it was like, the bucket was a couple ro rows up. <laughs> and you probably can understand why that matters. They were long rows. So from that moment to the moment that the bucket got to me, there was a lot of disciple, Jesus disciple complexity that entered in. Is this really the Lord? I don't know that I really hear from God anymore. Uh, you know, <laughs> the hearing of God gets super complex, and it's like, this doesn't make any sense. These people are going to look at a watch in a bucket. Are they going to sell it? They'll probably get like 50 bucks for it, and like, are they going to give the $50 to the church? Or like, where's this watch? Like, all of this logic and reasoning starts to go through my head, right? And I'm like, oh, gosh, so the bucket's cruising, and I'm like, oh, panic in my heart, right? So much complexity, so much complexity for me. 
that when the bucket got to me, it went by. And the, the worship music's going, it's Casey, IHOP, the, you know, like the bass drums, like, I love that. You can like feel it in your chest. And I'm like trying to worship, and there is no more worship happening, right? There is zero worship that's happening. I have just totally offended the Holy Spirit, and I'm in full disobedience. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just like miserable. Thousands of people around me worshiping. And so finally, it's probably like, I don't know, 10 minutes later, I finally go, this is not going to work, right? And, and so I like run back to the back, and I'm looking for the offering buckets, and there's no more offering buckets. And I think it was the last day of the conference, so there's like no more offerings. And I'm running around, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like what do I do? And I run over to the exit, and there's like a, a security person standing there. And I go, hey, is the offering bucket gone? And he goes, oh yeah, they're like already up counting it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I kind of drop my head, and I turn around, and I'm walking away. And I hear the guy go, but you know, if you have something to give, I can make sure that it gets there. And you can imagine the, like, split emotion that went on inside. <laughs> I wish it was like, praise Jesus. It was definitely not. It was kind of like, oh. <laughs> you know? And so I, like, popped that baby off, and I handed it to the guy, and he kind of, like, you know, kind of looks at it. And I go back, and I'm just, like, you know, go amongst the thousands of people and enjoy worship and just go, like, you know, have a good moment with God. But like the simplicity of loving Jesus, right? Like there's this, we talked about it at the beginning, there's this crazy, I think we need to like remind ourselves of this so often. There's this weird thing that, that God has made his heart available to us in a way that we can actually move him. You know, in the, in the last sermon that I talked about, I was talking about how Jesus is talking about this moment at the end of history where he's kind of judging the nations. And it seems like in Matthew 25, right before this, the main criteria for that is, did you love Jesus' brothers and sisters? He says, to the least of these brothers and sisters that I have, you've loved me. In other words, he's made it very tangible and very available for us to love God. I think sometimes I, I'm thinking like, how can I love God? God, how can I love you? What does that look like? How can I love you? And when we look at the scriptures, he makes it very tangible. In Matthew 25, it looks like loving the other disciples of Jesus. It looks like finding the one that needs a drink of water and giving them a drink of water. It finds find the one who needs food and giving them food. It find, it's the stranger who's a disciple of Jesus and you welcome them into your home. There's like this direct attribution to Jesus where he's moved just as if you did it to him because you did it to one of the ones that loves him. In other places, like in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, go into your prayer room. Pray to God where nobody else is looking. Nobody else is around. It's just you and your father. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Why? Why would he reward you? Because it's the affirmation of a father pleased with their child. You, you've moved me. And here's a reward. When worship in church became a different thing for me, 
was when I started to realize that what we were doing here was not just singing songs. When it wasn't the appetizer to the sermon. It was this moment where I get to sing to God. I get to use my faculty, my members, like, you know, my body to raise my hands. That's why I raise my hands now. Because, like, I believe that Jesus has given me strength in my body to worship with my physical being. So whether it's on my face, on my knees, or my arms up, or booming with my voice, whether I feel like it or I don't, it's like, it's a recognition that he's given me this thing that I can choose with my will to move in a way that then moves him. And so worship at home in my own private prayer closet and, and worship here took on this whole new life thing because I was like, oh wow, this is like this. Worship done well where I'm giving everything I've got is like me breaking an alabaster jar over Jesus. And in the story, he ends up smelling really good and so does the woman. Everybody else walks out stinking, but those two walking out, those two walk out smelling the same. Like this glorious perfume where clearly he's been hanging out with Jesus. And there's this interesting thing that I want to close with here, which is this. She does this act with no understanding that this is going to bless anybody but Jesus. And it ends up blessing billions of people for generations to come. The disciples think what she should be doing is directly blessing the poor. And if, if she had done that, who knows what would have happened, but maybe we would have never heard her story and the 12 people that she would have blessed of the poor would have been blessed. I think there's kind of a key for us in how to be fruitful in the Christian life in this story. Which of these has more fruit? The woman clearly hands down. What did she do? She was utterly consumed with loving Jesus. Everything in her life, everything in this moment, probably everything that she had was given to this sole thing of I am fixated on loving God. I'm fixated on loving Jesus. Nobody else needs to know about it. It doesn't matter if it ever blesses anybody else. My job is I'm fixated on loving Jesus. I feel like as a pastor, I've kind of been going, this vulnerable moment, I've kind of been going after this a little bit. In the last like three or so years, I feel like I've gotten some really good breakthrough in the area of ministry. Oftentimes as a pastor, how many numbers you have really matters to you. And there's the like disciple version of why. It's like, well, if there's more people here, then more people are blessed with the messages that we give and the powerful work that we do as a church. But oftentimes it really just has to do with you and how, how good you feel about the ministry that you're doing, right? That happens a lot. And when, when certain pastors are confronted with the idea of losing their church, they're devastated because they didn't realize it, but their numbers and what's going on here props up their identity in a way that it's totally unhealthy and leads to a, a toxic dynamic in the church. And so I feel like Jesus has been bringing me, over a number of years, Jesus has been bringing me through this thing, which is like, does it matter to you if this church is 10 people for the rest of your life? It doesn't matter. It, do, it does not matter. 
It doesn't matter because the reason why we do this is for the honor of Jesus. The reason why we do anything in our... Does it matter in your life if you see 5,000 people saved through your ministry or three? What I would contend to you is if God called you to three, then I'm not sure what, what this other stuff was doing, but these are the ones that matter. And he probably had a plan for the other 4,900 and whatever. This whole thing needs to become simple again in that we are singularly focused. Let's not get consumed with fruit. Let's not get consumed in judging like what we're doing and how fruitful it is and what's not. Let's just consume ourselves looking at the face of Jesus. Are we honoring him? Are we pleasing him? Are we obeying the voice of the one that we're following? Because if we are, I think we're gonna get a really awesome, well done, oh my gosh, good and faithful servant. You, you sat in that set. You were a stay-at-home mom when it didn't feel fruitful. You, you've sowed into three people your entire life, but it's exactly what I wanted you to do. Or man, I called you to this company. You didn't get promoted for 20 years. You didn't know why it was happening, but I told you to stay there the whole time, and you loved the eight people around you for a really, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What this woman got, I don't even think she knew she was doing this. Like, she didn't know she had a key here, but she had a key. Her sole aim was loving Jesus. And the fruit came. It was so simple with her. It was so simple with her that all of the complexity dialed down to this one thing. I'm going to end with this one other story that's in the gospel that I think displays this simplicity, complexity thing extremely well. This is in John chapter 9. Actually, Steve, can you come on up? This is in John chapter 9. And this is the story of there was this blind guy who was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees, who are trying not to have Jesus be a popular thing at this time, bring this blind guy in to their courts and they interview him. And they say, so tell us what happened. And he goes, well, there's this guy, Jesus. He made some mud. He rubbed that mud in my eyes. And now I can see. And they're like, well, don't you know about this, Jesus? How then is your, we know that he's a sinner. We know that he's just a man. We know he's not sent by God. And then they say, how then are your eyes opened? And he, and he kind of, he kind of says it again. Where is this man? He says, I don't know. And then they say, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. It's exactly the same as the disciples, right? It's like this understanding that they have theologically breaks them from the joy of what just happened. They completely miss this joyful moment of like, unbelievable. You were blind? And now you see? And it was done through mud? That's amazing. There's none of that. Oh, he did it on the Sabbath? Oh, this isn't from God, right? What do you have to say about him? Uh, it was your eyes he opened. He's a prophet. And then they lay into him. We know who your son is. We know that you were blown, born blind. We know that you were born into sin. A second time, they send him away. A second time, they, they summon him up and they say, give glory to God by telling the truth, they say. We know this man is a sinner, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. 
Then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I have already told you, and you didn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they start hurling insults at him. This is exactly it. There's a simplicity of a guy who's encountered Jesus, and he's like, this person's amazing. I think he's a prophet because he's touched my life. I don't know. And they're like lost in complexity. The thing that I'd like to bring us back to is let's just love Jesus. The question that I'd, I'd leave us with is what does it look like right now? What does it look like in your life right now to extravagantly love Jesus? Super simple question. Oftentimes really hard to answer. What does it look like to be the woman? What does it look like to lavish love on Jesus right now? It could look like a million things. But what I'd encourage you to do is just like, as we end in our time of worship, have a moment with the Holy Spirit. Have a moment with the Holy Spirit where you just ask him and just say, I don't want to assume what it looks like to love Jesus. Because the disciples assumed in this story that they knew what it looked like to love Jesus. I want to hear it from you. What does it look like? So let's stand, let's worship, and let's enjoy the voice of the Spirit as he gives us a way to practically and actively please and move our Father.